What's your thing? My cell phone and home internet provider, AT&T, and its ad campaign and every time I'm on hold with them tells me everyone has a thing. What's yours? And it promises me that for regular monthly payments, of course, it will help me do more of my thing. I think AT&T is right. Everyone indeed has a thing. What's your thing? Or as Kyle encouraged me to, to say, what's your thang? In liter it might be a hobby, a passion, a pleasure, a possession, even a person, or maybe an achievement. But everyone has a thing. In literature, often important characters engage in a high-stakes pursuit of their thing. Take Shakespeare, for instance. Yes, our other elder Kyle likes to quote Tupac and Taylor Swift. I prefer to quote Shakespeare. Anyway, one of the worst, worst villains in all of Shakespeare's plays is Richard III. Richard is willing to say anything and to kill anyone, brothers, nephews, wives, to get what he wants, power. And in a prequel play to Richard III, young Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, shares his thing with the audience. Many times Shakespeare's characters kind of pull back the mask and they tell the audience what they're really thinking. He decides to tell the audience what makes him tick, what he has decided to live his life for. He desperately wants to be the king, but there are several family members who are standing in his way. And he wonders if he could settle for something else, maybe pleasure or nice things. So in that play he says, well, say there is no kingdom then for Richard. What other pleasure can the world afford? I'll make my heaven in a lady's lap and deck my body with gay ornaments. By that he means shiny bling or name brands. And bewitch sweet ladies with words and looks. But then he thinks about it like, nah, that's really not my thing. That's, that's probably not what I'm going to be best at. So he concludes, I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. So after deciding against pleasure and possessions as his ultimate goal, he settles on power. To borrow a line from AT&T, the crown of England was his thing. Another figure from literature who had a thing was Faust. According to legend, he was a brilliant scholar who was willing to sell his soul to the devil in order to get a few years of great wisdom and great pleasure. He struck a bargain with the devil through the demon Mephistopheles and then realized that he had made a terrible mistake when the devil came to collect. Today, we sometimes say that someone makes a Faustian bargain when they sell their soul for something, or even if they just violate their conscience for a price. When we think about the various things that someone could live for, they usually fall into one of three categories. Pleasures, things that people enjoy or like to experience. They feel good. Possessions, things people like to have or look at. They look good. And accomplishments, things that make us proud, things that enhance our status, or they're like an award or an achievement we can earn. Everyone has a thing. We all love something and we live for what we love. Tell me what you love and I'll tell you who you are, a French novelist once wrote. Today's passage is a strong warning not to love the wrong thing. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John Chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles that are provided there in the seats, that's on page 707, 707. I think you'll be helped, whether it's on your iPhone or your tablet, 
or uh, in one of the Bibles provided or in your own Bible to turn. We're going to look at three verses, and I think you'll be helped to be able to look at them as I reference them. While you're turning there, I'll stall a little bit, and we'll just recap our series through 1 John as you're looking for 1 John chapter 2. Go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and flip a few small books forward. You'll find it, 1 John chapter 2. So we're in a series called Basics for Believers. John is giving us basic truths about the Christian life. He's also using basic, simple language. He, yet he says very often very profound things with this basic, simple language. And we can often make the mistake of reading too much into his simple words. And as we've seen through this series, a helpful way to look at this letter or epistle, which is just a fancy way of saying a letter, is through a series of three tests. Three tests for the three basic elements of true Christianity. If you don't pass all three tests, it means you don't have true Christianity, whether that's in your own personal heart, whether it's in a church or in a denomination or a particular ministry. If you don't have these three elements present, you don't really have true Christianity. First is the truth test, what we believe. There are certain things, certain truths that must be believed and affirmed in order to have true Christianity. But beyond that, there's a light test or the, the morality test or a lifestyle test. This is how we live. Not that we ever reach sinless perfection in this life, but if there's no change in our life after we've accepted the truth, it's a very good indication that we've never truly believed. And then the love test, who and how we love. What and who we love and how we love them says a lot about whether we have true Christianity. And today's passage is another love test. But unlike previous passages we've looked at where we were um, commanded what to love, namely God and others, this is a command about what not to love. It's a command to not love the wrong thing. And it warns us that if we do love the wrong thing, we failed the love test of true Christianity. And this passage is both for Christians and for non-Christians. It deals with something that Christians are constantly tempted to do, and it also describes the consistent lifestyle of someone who's never truly become a Christian. So now that I've stalled long enough, let's go ahead and look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I'm titling this sermon, The Danger of Misplaced Love. The Danger of Misplaced Love. This passage is a command. It's telling us something not to do. You could rephrase this like the Ten Commandments and say, Thou shalt not love the world. It also helpfully explains exactly what it means to break this command, to love the world. And it also warns us of the consequences of breaking this command and about what breaking this command says about our eternal souls. But it's not just a negative command, a stick, if you will. It also has the positive incentive or carrot to obey the command, the assurance of eternal life and having lived for something that matters eternally. It has eternal significance. And I think the best way for us to understand this passage is to ask three simple questions. And then we'll think about different ways we can apply this text to our lives. So three questions. What is the world? What's in the world? And why not love the world? What is the world? What's in the world? And why not love the world? First question. What is the world? 
what is this thing that we're not supposed to love? And I think it'll, be, it'll help by starting to look at what the world does not mean. What, it, what does John not mean by the world here? First of all, he doesn't mean creation, the physical world around us. Genesis chapter 1 says that once God created everything that exists, he looked at it and said it was very good. And even though the fall has happened and all of creation is cursed in many different ways, even then it still proclaims his glory. Just read many of the Psalms, including Psalm 19. So it's not talking about creation. It's also not talking about people or the people who are in the world. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the sinful people who were in the world so much, he sent his own sinless son to die in their place, to die for their sins. And we know from our previous sermons in the series that we are commanded to love our fellow Christians. And we're, even, we're, we're commanded to love anyone created in God's image, including even, as Christ himself taught us, our enemies. So that's what it's not. It's not talking about creation. It's not talking about people. What is the world? It's talking about the world system. Specifically, the evil world system that is opposed to God, sometimes openly and sometimes subtly. We often use the phrase, the way of the world, right, to describe injustice and wickedness and bad things that happen in this world. The way of the world, that's really what John is getting at here. The word in the Greek is cosmos, and just like the English word word, world, it can mean many things in different circumstances. But that's what God is talking about here, is the evil world system. And Satan is, a sense, in a sense, the ruler of this world. Though God is still ultimately in control, he's sovereign, he allows Satan to influence this fallen world system until he chooses in his good timing and according to his good plan to defeat Satan once for all. I've been reading in my devotions recently in some other books that John wrote, Revelation chapter 3, uh, Satan is called the ruler of this world. And one of the cities in this world is called where Satan's throne is. And then in John chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he was crucified. He tells his disciples, you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Does anyone remember the old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? It's a great one, I love that one. For the Christian, this world system was once our home, but now it's not. Now we are homesick for a place we've never been before, for heaven. And, and the Bible constantly reminds us that being on good terms with this evil world system and being on good terms with God are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. Another place in the Bible it says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. To be the friend of this world is to be the enemy of God. So we are not to love the evil world system that is temporarily controlled by Satan. That seems a little vague, doesn't it? How do, how do I live that out practically? Fortunately, John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, goes on to help us understand what's that, what that means. So our second question, what's in the world? John helps us understand the command to not love the world by breaking down the things in the world into three categories. These are three desires or lusts, which is another other translation saying is just another word for a strong desire. An important thing to remember is that each of these categories can include things that are inherently morally wrong, but it also can include things that are morally neutral or even good, but that be can become wrong in the wrong context or if, we don't, or if we love them too much or in the wrong way. They become idols. Notice verse 16. Look with me at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here we see three things. 
And now it's a cardinal rule of sermon outlines and good preaching that you never make your outline a list of things. But since John himself uses the word things in this passage, I think it'll be okay. Just don't tell Kyle, okay? So three things. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. Whereas some translations uh, call that pride in possessions. I think that's one of the many aspects here, but I think pride of life kind of covers the whole gambit here. And some commentators really get carried away over analyzing these three categories. Um, you know what these words mean in the original Greek? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Here's the best way to think about these things. Flesh, things that feel good. Eyes, things that look good. Pride, things that make us proud. Three things. John is using very simple language. It's child-friendly language. As we've seen throughout the series, uh, John often uses the term of endearment, little children, for his audience and for us. And I don't think the only reason he uses that is to show his love. I think part of the reason is he is intentionally using childlike language for our benefit here. He's breaking it down Barney style, as we might say in the army. Our minds immediately want to fit various sins that we know of and temptations underneath one of these things. Our brains like to categorize. That's the way God made them. But I think a, a, a concept from mathematics and logic will help us understand how these things relate. Anyone remember Venn diagrams from elementary school or geometry? I'm the only one a few of you do. Okay. Bonus points. Who knows what that curved triangle in the center is called? Anyone? Rouleau triangle. I didn't know this either until I did a deep dive on Venn diagrams. Well, anyway, that was, that was a bonus there. But I think this is really helpful. Venn diagrams just basically help us think about different groups or sets and how they relate to each other or how they sometimes overlap. So think with me. These are very general categories. Certain sins or temptations or even good things that can become idols fall under more than one or sometimes even all three of these categories. Just think about sexual sin. That's what we often think of. We see flesh and we think, oh, that's talking about all those kinds of sins. They feel good and they can become addicting. But then also think about, well, then there's the eyes, um, things that are nice to look at. Um, and uh, that's often the route of temptation. Those of us who've ever struggled with sexual sin, we know that the eyes are a, a route for temptation here. Well, what about pride? Some people uh, use their sexuality for their status or to manipulate other people to get what they want or even just to make other people jealous of them. So here you go. Here's one sin that kind of fits in all three of these categories, depending on the motivation. Let's take another sin, materialism which basically means living for money or living for stuff, the stuff that you can buy with money. Think about the, how it appeals to the flesh, that sense of security that we can sometimes get when we think we have enough money, or the comfort we can experience when we have nice things. There's the appeal of the eyes. We like to look at things or to possess things. Maybe we just have a taste for beauty and art, which can be great, but that can become a worship of those things, or we become collectors of something. Now, there's nothing wrong with collecting if that's part of an innocent hobby that you have, but those of us who collect things always have to be careful, like, what's my motivation? Am I, am I making this a materialistic idol in my heart? If I'm tempted to collect anything, it's probably books, and I have to, when I go to Barnes & Noble, I have to think, am I ever going to read this? Do I want this just to put on my shelf and feel good about myself? Do I really need this? So materialism. Living for money and stuff can fit under all three of these things. And then even something as innocent and neutral as a desire to travel, to see the world. It appeals to our flesh, right? We want on a vacation to relax and recharge, to have fun. And of course, when it comes wintertime, we're always looking for a chance to go someplace warm, right? 
What about the eyes? We might love beautiful scenery or breathtaking views of God's creation or just enjoy beautiful accommodations. And then pride. The, it can, it can, uh, where we go on vacation be kind of a status symbol, can't it? Or achieving our bucket list. Nothing wrong with having a, a list of things that you'd love to do someday. But think about the people who are really serious about their bucket list. They're really basically saying that, that their measure for success in their life is getting to tick off a list of fun experiences or accomplishments. Again, sometimes these desires or lusts are inherently wrong things, but they are also sometimes good things at the wrong time, or good things that become substitutes for the most important thing. They become idols. And there are specific ways that we are tempted, these are specific ways that we are tempted to love the world. These are also three things in the world that keep people oftentimes from trusting in Jesus as their savior. Like a Faustian bargain, they'd rather sell their eternal soul for the, the pleasures of this life. There are just some sins that they won't repent of or, uh, or idols that they won't give up to follow Christ. And these are also three ways that we as Christians get attacked by temptations to sin, specifically the sin of loving this world. So that's an explanation of the command. We might next ask, why? What is so wrong with loving the world? What will happen if I do love the world? I mean, it almost just seems so natural that I should love this world and the things that are in it. So our third question, why not love the world? The bottom line is, because if we truly love the world, and we truly and totally love the world, we're not really Christians. And if, as Christians, we love the world too much, we're in danger of wasting our lives. What do I mean? First of all, if we truly love the world, it's the pattern of our life is that we love the world and the sinful things in it. We have failed the love test. We're loving the wrong thing. And so we've failed the love test. Look at verse 15, at the second half there, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Just as in English, so in Greek, that little word of can mean many things. And here it could mean that the love that comes from God to us or it could mean the love that we have for God. Knowing how much John loves double and even triple meaning sometimes, it probably means both. So if we love the world, we have not experienced God's love, and we don't love God the way we should. There's a cautionary tale from the New Testament. Remember, uh, Kyle talks about Demas in some of his messages on Philemon recently. Demas was a fellow laborer of Paul. He was there for the highs and for the lows, side to side, shoulder to shoulder with Paul in his many ministry opportunities. But later on, Paul had to write toward the end of his ministry that Demas forsook him, abandoned him, because he loved this present world. Demas revealed that he never truly was a Christian because he loved the evil world system and everything that it claimed to offer. But a second reason not to love the world, because the world won't last. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world system will not last. In fact, God is saying that it is already in the process of passing away. And all the things that we might live for in this life will pass away as well. But if we do the will of God, we trust Christ, we seek to live for him, we and our works done for him will last for all eternity. Don't live for what won't last. Live for what will last forever. 
And what will last forever? Human souls will last forever. The glory of God will last forever. If we live for these things, we can be assured that, as John Piper says, we won't waste our lives. There's a word in the Bible uh, that's often used to understand this concept, and I think it will help us uh, understand some applications for our life. It's called worldliness. Literally, it means to be like the world. So it means being like this evil world system. Another way of saying uh, that you love the world. And in the circles that Kyle and I grew up in, worldliness was most often associated with personal standards of dress, entertainment, and music, things like that. And now, we need to be on guard against forcing our own man-made rules and standards on others, that form of kind of soft-core legalism, but they weren't totally wrong. If we never ask ourselves tough, honest questions about what we choose to watch, wear, or listen to, we're probably loving the world in a sinful way. If you want a helpful resource on this, how to think through what is and is not worldliness, there's a great book by Sovereign Grace Ministries called Worldliness that was really helpful as I was studying for this sermon, so I recommend that to you. But as we seek to apply this to our lives, I thought it would be helpful to have some concrete examples of what worldliness looks like so that we can recognize in our own lives when we are sinfully loving the world. How many of you have ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy? A few people admit to it. Okay, remember his, you might be a redneck jokes. You might be a redneck if you ever cut your grass and found a car. Or you might be a redneck if you have more cars on blocks than on wheels. Or you might be a redneck if you've ever made change in the offering plate. All right, we're all going to be watching you now afterwards, so watch out. I decided to do my own version. Well, and, um, you know, you might love the world if, or you might be worldly if, and my apologies in advance, that was the funny part. These really aren't meant to be funny, but that's just like the concept to kind of work through this. So you might love the world if. You might love the world if you care more about your career than accomplishing anything for God's glory. This is a big one for those of us in the army, right? It's really easy to be obsessed with our career, really any career profession. I remember lawyers who were obsessed with making partner or being known as the top lawyer in their area or in their field. You might love the world if you care more about your children's athletic ability than you care about their eternal soul or their relationship with Christ. And there's a lot of things we could substitute in here. You might love the world if you care more about your children's academic ability or their popularity, or their career, or their finding a spouse so you can have grandchildren, or their self-esteem, or even their affection for you, your desire to have your children like you. You can desire those things more than you care about their eternal soul or their relationship with Christ. You might love the world if you care more about your earthly home than your heavenly home. You might love the world if there are some pleasures you just can't say no to, your guilty pleasures. You might love the world if you care more about wearing name brands than you care about your identity in Christ. You might love the world if you care more about getting praise and glory than God getting praise and glory. You might love the world if you have an obsessive drive to succeed. And you might love the world if you have absolutely no drive to succeed. You're lazy, unmotivated, or your pride paralyzes you by fear of failure. You might love the world if you're a foodie but have no interest in spiritual food. You might love the world if you love animals more than you love people. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving animals in a fashion. God made animals, he enjoys animals, and he made animals for us to enjoy, right next to mashed potatoes. No, 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 as pets too and all those other, uh, other ways. But think about this. Humans, have, humans are eternal, and animals, as wonderful as they are, are not. You might love the world 
if you want desperately to fit in. But pleasing God and spending time with other believers is a much lower priority. There's a lot of peer pressure in this world, whether it's in school or in the army or in our neighborhoods, in our careers, in our families. Uh, that can be paralyzing, that peer pressure. You might love the world if you get very angry when people inconvenience you or get in the way of you, of you getting what you want. I really struggle with this one. And I've noticed that as I've been in the army around lots of angry people, I'm a lot more irritable and a lot more quick to express irritation. And the things that make us angry or the things that make us despair often reveal idols of the heart. If losing something crushes or enrages you, it might just be an idol. Well, so what, you might ask? What should we do about it? Well, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I just encourage you to examine your heart, examine your motives, and do that on a regular basis. This is one of the many reasons why reading the Bible every day and, and praying every day is so important for our spiritual health. We are so often bombarded by, by lies from our own sinful flesh and from the world system around us that we constantly need to reorient ourselves on what is true, what we should be living our lives for. And then be watchful, be on guard, like you're on patrol and, and, and the enemy's out there. Uh, Satan is looking to attack us, as, as Peter says in his epistle. Some of you know about the, the army term avenues of approach. That's just a fancy army word for saying routes that the enemy's gonna take to come at you, all right? So think about that. These are, these are three different ways that the, the enemy, Satan, is gonna come after us. How are you prepared to fend off those attacks? Do you have any kind of defenses for these different temptations? that we know are coming at us. For the non-Christian here, pretty, pretty often in every service we have someone who's not a believer, either they know they're a believer or they're questioning, and we're glad that you're here. You're always welcome here. We're so grateful that folks who ne aren't necessarily Christians but are checking things out feel very comfortable here. We hope that's always the case. But if you're not a Christian, how do you avoid loving the world and wasting your life? Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. This is the gospel. We've all fallen short. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection, and we deserve eternal punishment. But God made a way. He provided Jesus Christ. God became man, lived the sinless life that we should have lived and failed to. As uh, Abby read earlier, he's the one who resisted temptation when we gave in so that he could die on the cross as a substitute for sinners, so that if we simply turn from our sins, acknowledge them, admit them, and turn from them, and trust in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven, and we can have that assurance of eternal life and of a non-wasted life. And if you're, you have questions about that, would you please see me or see one of the other members here afterwards? It'd be a shame for you to, to leave today without knowing how your sins can be forgiven and how you have the hope of eternal life. Because if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you can't help but live for this world. That's all you have, is living for a world that won't last. Even if you're pretty religious or even moral, if you are not in Christ through faith, nothing you do will ultimately matter for eternity. And you will spend all eternity away from the presence of the God who made you and for whom you were designed to give glory. Everyone has a thing. What's your thing? Is it a thing that is passing away or is it a thing that will last forever? As we're closing here, I thought it'd be helpful to look at two different case studies. Two examples of someone who failed this command to not love the world and someone who obeyed it. Let's look at one man who disobeyed this command to not love the world and one man, the only man, who ever fully obeyed it. Remember that passage that Abby just read earlier from Genesis chapter 3? That's dealing with Adam, the first man. In Genesis 3, 6, which she read, it says, 
So when the woman, or we might just say they, because that verse says that Adam was right there with her. So when they saw that the tree was good for food, it appealed to their flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, it appealed to their eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, appealing to our pride, she took and ate, and he ate. Our first parents failed to obey the command not to love the world, and now we are all cursed with a natural love for this evil world system. But along came a second man, the second Adam, as he is often referred to, Christ. And in the gospel account that was read earlier by Abby, we see the temptation of Christ by Satan. Remember that first temptation, the temptation to make bread? That definitely appeals to the flesh, right? And then he was given a view of all the kingdoms of the world, likely appealing to, to pride, but also all the wonderful things that we could see in all those kingdoms. And then seeking attention by throwing himself from the pinnacle and doing a spectacle that way. That would definitely appeal to pride. Christ succeeded where Adam failed. Because the sinless Savior died for our sins, we can be assured that we will not waste our lives. Now, I know this sermon has been a bit of a downer. It all, that often happens when you're dealing with a command of what not to do. But there's an implication in this passage that should be very encouraging to us. This passage, in a way, assures us that there is something worth living for. There is something worth loving. Non-Christian friend, repent of your sins and trust in Christ so that you can live for something that matters. Christian, be on guard against the different ways that we can sin by loving the world. And just keep fighting the good fight. Your struggle has purpose. You are living for something that matters. Earlier in this sermon, I quoted the Elizabethan English of Shakespeare. So I thought the best way to close this passage was to, to, to read this passage in that similar language. And thanks to my many years in Awana as a child, let me quote to you our passage from the King James Version. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.